Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So turn with me, if you have a copy of God's Word, and just put your finger in 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2. Uh, many of you know Aesop's fables. The famous uh, fable, of course, is the tortoise and the hare. And it recalls the account of a, of a prideful and uh, somewhat antagonistic hare, or rabbit, if you will, who regularly teased and, and bothered a tortoise because the tortoise, of course, was slow. You know the story. One day when the tortoise had endured enough ridicule and bragging, the two challenged each other to a race. Obviously, the hare was much faster, much more swift. And uh, the tortoise believed, though, that even he, with all the hare's speed, could be beaten. So the hare gladly accepted the challenge, and the next day the two arrived bright and early, taking their place at the starting line. The race began, and immediately the rabbit took off in a whirlwind because it's a rabbit, right? And that's what rabbits do. And as he looked behind him, he saw this tortoise lumbering along, um, barely out of the starting gate, and, and the, the hare laughed in his heart, and he knew that he would defeat his rival with ease and prove his skeptic wrong. Seeing how far ahead he was, of course, he decided to step aside and, and take a little nap. He said, I'll have 40 winks and catch up with the hare in just a few minutes. And suddenly, the hare awoke up with a jolt, and he looked around and saw that even after a long nap, that the tortoise was still barely barely past halfway, breathing a sigh of relief. Then he wandered off into a field to have some breakfast. However, the meal and the rising sun made his eyelids droop, and with a careless gla- glance back at the tortoise, who was still barely past halfway, he decided to have another nap and to snooze before, of course, flashing to the finish line. But as the day pressed on and the sun began to set, the tortoise, who had been faithfully moving along, was now less than a few yards from the finish line when suddenly the hare woke up. And uh, groggy and disoriented, he looked around only to see the tortoise cross the finish line and claim victory. And uh, he watched helplessly as the tortoise lumbered past the finish line and won the race. We know the story. It's a cute story. And we even kind of know its lessons. But one of the lessons of this simple fable illustrates the main point of the passage that is before us this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul says that as a minister of the new covenant, he is not one who loses heart. And uh, to lose heart here, that, that turn of a phrase has the idea of not only yielding in the midst of difficulty, but being overcome with lethargy and boredom. The opposite of losing heart is, the ref- is to refuse all negligence, all laziness, and to hold fast in the midst of difficulty and, this is important, distraction. This is the point that he's making In contrast, the hare, of course, in this fable, was certainly capable of defeating the tortoise. There's no question about it. But um, instead, he let down his guard, he slacked off, he became lazy and negligent, and he softened his stance. But the tortoise, on the other hand, was focused. He was diligent. He was able to keep his eye on the prize, and like a marathon runner, he kept pressing on. He kept moving forward and 
ultimately cross the finish line successfully. As Paul defends his life and gospel ministry in this letter, he reveals to us in verse 1 that being a minister or a servant, if you will, under the new covenant means that he and we have a supernatural motivation driving us to stay the course in ministry. He's not like some, Paul says, he's not like some who let up, who ultimately forfeit the reward and forfeit the prize. He is diligent to keep his eyes on the finish line. I I always go back to Philippians chapter 3 because Paul says as Christians, and he says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I, I like to sign emails um, with the, um, the, at the end with press on. I like that because I, it reminds me of that passage. It reminds me of what the Christian life is all about. As we sit at the feet of Paul here in our text, we see that a ministry worth defending is a ministry that endures. It's a ministry that presses on and endures all the testings of life. Testings in terms of trials, yes, but testings in terms of blessings as well. And we need to think about that. How can Paul speak with such confidence here in this section and know that he will remain faithful to the end. How can he say that? How can he state with such authority what his future holds when he can't possibly know what God's will is? He can't possibly know what God is going to bring into his life. See, Paul can make that statement, this bold statement in verse 1, we do not lose heart because there are supernatural realities that stand behind his efforts. We need to consider these things. We need to consider that this morning. This is a special Sunday for the life of our church. This is a unique Sunday. Um, You know, it's our first Sunday in our own permanent meeting space. And for years, those of you who have been here for, for years, like we have been, for many years we have labored at the task of uh, making and maturing disciples of Christ. That has been our goal from the beginning, and we have done that, and, and we continue to do that. But we've always done that, occupying someone else's space for meeting on the Lord's Day. And, and, uh, and we dreamt and planned and, and, and gave without any real picture or idea of how or when the Lord might open the door for a dedicated meeting space, someplace we could, we could call our own all the time. And uh, in God's kindness, he's made this available to us. He has given us the resources, he's given us the people, and he's given us the opportunity to do uh, what we have done in the last few months. This is a real blessing and a real answer to many prayers. It's a real opportunity for us as a church to expand uh, our gospel impact and our fellowship with one another. But it is also, and I think it's worth noting, it is also a test for us as a church. It's a test because in God's blessing, there lurks beneath the surface the real temptation, like the hair, to become complacent, to become lazy, or to nod off spiritually and to be distracted. All around us, there are men and women, pastors and lay people, churches and missionaries who do not stay the course. They don't stay the course. And I think of it in terms of... um, you know, we went camping not that long ago, and, and when you start a fire, you, you get small kindling and real s- 
tiny pieces of wood. And you have to have a lot of kindling when you start a fire ready to go because as soon as you throw it on the fire, it burns up and disappears, right? And so it just burns up quickly. And, and that is kind of the way so many ministries and pastors and churches end up. They burn hot and bright for a short season, but then they immediately flame and fizzle out. And as we mark this significant milestone in the life of our church, I just thought it would be important and appropriate for us to reconsider this topic of endurance in ministry. How do we press on? How do we keep at the task? How can you keep laboring and striving toward the mark? How can this church continue to gain gospel progress like we have been able to do over these last years? How can Cascades Bible Church have an enduring ministry? That's what we want to consider this morning. And Paul lays before us in this text the recipe for an enduring ministry. In these verses, Paul serves up three supernatural convictions that lead to an enduring ministry. They are three, threefold. You must be motivated by the grace of God. Secondly, you must be committed to the truth of God. And thirdly, you must be satisfied with the approval of God. So we're going to take them one by one this morning, and they follow the text almost uh, perfectly. But we begin with the first supernatural conviction that leads to an enduring ministry, and that comes in verse 1. And that is, you must be dependent, and I must be dependent on the grace of God. You look at verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Again, 2 Corinthians was a letter in which Paul was defending himself against those who were trying to assassinate his character and who were speaking ill of him. And the message he had for them, particularly in these opening sections of the letter, is that he was conducting ministry according to a whole different set of rules. He says back in chapter 3 that he is a minister or servant under the new covenant. If you look back at chapter 3, verse 6, he makes it clear that God has made us as servants of the new covenant. He says, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In the whole of chapter 3, Paul highlights that this new covenant ministry that we all sit under as believers in the church is a new covenant that is superior to the old covenant in every way. He says the old covenant, he points out that the old covenant was temporary. It was never meant to be forever. The old covenant was never meant to be the final solution to sin. The old covenant always looked ahead to Jesus they didn't know specifically who that would be, but they looked ahead to a Messiah who would bring salvation not only to the Jews, but to the, whole, to the nations, to the Gentiles. The Old Covenant, Paul makes clear in Galatians, was a tutor to point hearts and minds to embrace the ultimate salvation that would come through Jesus Christ and Him alone through faith. And we look at verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, For if the ministry of condemnation, which is how he refers to the Old Covenant, if that has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. It's like if you have a 10-watt light bulb and a 40,000-watt light bulb. Like, this has its own glory, but this light bulb is clearly brighter and it's, it shines that much bright, more, more powerfully. That's what he's saying here. It's not that the Old Covenant was wrong. It just wasn't as glorious. And what is the defining characteristic of ministry under this New Covenant? 
Well, new covenant ministry is carried out by the Holy Spirit in us as believers under the full revelation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is carrying out what you and I know as gospel ministry. That's what he's doing. It's just using Old Testament language to describe it here in chapter 3. This gospel ministry, he says, is unique. It's different than it was before because it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we read that even in our scripture reading this morning in John, in John 16. Um, he grants the Spirit does faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He, he removes the veil that blinds and obstructs our ability to see and receive and rest in God's grace to undeserving sinners. We see that in verse 16 of chapter 3. He says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So he doesn't just remove the veil. The Spirit also sustains our faith. He gives us a new heart that aches to turn away from sin, that aches to turn away from that which dishonors God and to follow in his footsteps. Now, under the new covenant, we obey God not to earn his forgiveness, but out of the joy of forgiveness. You'll remember last Sunday I made the point that we don't have, when we don't have to fight for assurance, we, we're set free to fight with assurance in a way that is uh, enduring. And as you, day by day, trust in the unspeakable generosity of God who has forgiven all of our sins, which is just a staggering thought in and of itself, then your heart is filled with gratitude. Then you know real joy, as Jesus said, and no one can take your joy from you no matter what. You have a real hope of eternal life. So all of that draws to a conclusion in our text in verse 1. And Paul says, therefore, since we have this ministry, this ministry, now we do not lose heart. Since we have this new covenant ministry, since we are empowered by the Holy Spirit, since he has revealed the grace of God to us, showering us with God's mercy, because of that, we can endure. We can press on. So in his mind, there is a direct connection between the grace of God in the gospel and the ministry that endures, that stands the test of time. Your ministry, my ministry, this church's ministry can stand the test of time because of the sustaining power of God's grace in us. He keeps us pressing on. The, the well of gratitude never runs dry when we come back to the grace of God. The joy we have in believing is never exhausted, though it may be drained or we may take our eyes off the ball. It never is destroyed and exhausted. The flame of hope is never extinguished. And that is what Paul is getting at here. The truth of God's grace stirs up every heart to serve with every circum in every circumstance, in weakness, in busyness, in rejection, in isolation, but also in prosperity and success, in peace and in partnership and fellowship. Being dependent on God's grace versus trusting and resting in our flesh is, um, is, is a lot like the difference between driving a car up a hill with an engine or pushing a car up a hill with no engine. 
In the one case, the task is almost uh, effortless. Just drive up the hill, put your foot on the gas, and up you go. In the other case, it is impossible. And so the question becomes, what is driving our ministry as a church? Is it the engine of God's grace in the gospel, or is it the brute force of your flesh? If we want to have a gospel ministry that endures the test of time, if we don't want to fizzle out, we must continually come back to and depend on the grace of God. And Paul makes that clear in verse 1. There's a second spiritual, supernatural reality that, uh, that we must be committed to, and that is the Word of God. In verse 2, he makes it clear. An enduring ministry requires a commitment to the Word of God. And uh, if the grace of God in the gospel is the engine that drives the car, then the Word of God is the fuel that you put in the tank to make that engine go. And just as gasoline needs to be pure and free from all impurities to work properly and efficiently, so the Word of God must be pure and undefiled to keep the engine of ministry humming along for a lifetime of faithfulness. As Paul reflects on the grace of God and its power to strengthen him for a lifetime of ministry. He moves in verse 2 to answering his critics. And his critics have said things like that Paul was in the ministry for his own personal gain. And Paul was in ministry for the wrong and, and, and selfish reasons, that he was a hypocrite and that he was manipulating them. And every kind of false accusation is leveled. And and Paul normally lets those things kind of brush off his back, but here he's defending himself, and he defends his commitment to the Word of God. And we see that in verse 2. He says, But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So in this transition from verse 1, Paul paints this this contrast between those who operate under a false pretense, who are carrying out ministry with impure motives, and then he contrasts them with himself. He says, listen, we have renounced those things. I, I, he says, I've dismissed all of it, and, and I've rejected it all. He is purposed, he, he says here in verse 2, definitively not to even toy with the idea of compromising the truth of God's word. He won't do that. He then goes on from here to define what that commitment means. What, is that, what does that mean? I mean, he says it, but, but he goes on here to define it and give a, uh, and he does that along three criteria, well, really four. Three are negative and one is positive. His commitment involves not doing certain things. This is what commitment to the Word of God is, and it involves doing other things. First, he says he will not compromise God's word by living a secret life of sin. If you look at verse 2 again, he says we've renounced the things hidden because of shame or the shameful things that are out of view. Paul's life, he says, is one of integrity. He is, uh, what you see with Paul is what you get. What, who he is on the outside is who he is on the inside. There are, he's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He was not going to compromise the truth of God's word by living in an inconsistent manner. Second, he says he will not compromise God's word by shrewd manipulation. He says we not only have renounced the things hidden because of shame, but he kind of adds to that and clarifies by not walking in craftiness. The pattern of his life was one of transparency. 
no secrets, no, uh, there was no uh, back ulterior motives underneath the surface with him. I remember years ago, my dad had a small business that he, um, he operated by himself, and he, uh, we had a mutual family friend. It was his, the, the family's son was my good friend, and we used to spend a lot of time together, and, and uh, this gentleman was a commercial real estate agent, and he, he, uh, he wanted to buy my father's business and bring him under the umbrella of uh, their commercial deal, and, and uh, he leveraged my relationship with his son to uh, draw my dad in and get him to sell the business at a good price. And he promised him all these things, a stable income and all these wonderful things. And, um, and so, you know, it seemed too good to be true. And so my dad said, yeah, well, let's do it. So they, he sold his business. And within a year, he had found out this gentleman was, was completely uh, hoodwinking his customers. He was, the left hand didn't know what the right hand was doing. He was double dipping. There was all kinds of things happening that my dad had no control over, and it's because he leveraged, he was walking in craftiness. He, he used my friendship with his son as an opportunity to enrich himself, and eventually my dad had to leave and start all over again because, because this man had taken advantage of him. And Paul says, that's not how we operate. We don't, we don't live like that. His concern for their souls by, in their words, he says, are concern, are, is their true con- his true concern in his heart for them. He wasn't in after money. He wasn't after power. He wasn't after political ambition, or he wasn't trying to build a platform for himself. In chapter 2, in verse 17, he says, We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity... As from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. So he says he will not compromise the word of God by shrewd manipulation. Thirdly, he will not compromise God's word by altering it in any way. If you look at verse 2 again, we are not like those walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. has the idea of, of um, twisting it or... or or turning it a different way. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3, Paul says that the time will come when they, professing Christians, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They will self-sort and find teachers that tell them what they want to hear. Titus 1, verse 9, points out the, 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 the draw to... to um, pervert or to twist the word of God is, is a constant temptation. And a faithful, mature man or woman in Christ is to hold fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that, and this is, an, he's speaking of elders, but it applies to all mature Christians, that they will be able to both exhort and sound doctrine, and if necessary, he says, to refute those who contradict. A mature Christian, especially a leader, must be, but a mature Christian in general should be able to um, articulate what is true from the Bible, and also defend what is not true. We don't initiate and we don't perpetuate error. And that commitment to the Word of God that refuses to compromise the Word of God is because by its very nature, we understand that God's Word is unchangeable. It doesn't morph with the culture. It doesn't morph with the time period that we live in. First Peter 1 makes that clear. All flesh is like grass, 
and its glory like the flower of the grass, but the grass withers and the flower will fall off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Or Psalm 119, verse 89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. God's word is unchangeable, and because it is unchangeable, it cannot be perverted, and it cannot be twisted. It cannot, it must not be adulterated. So Paul demonstrates by his life and his ministry a commitment to God's word negatively in the, in the sense of what he doesn't do by refusing to compromise it and living in open rebellion or in hidden rebellion. He refuses to manipulate others by it or through it, and he refuses to amend it or alter it or adulterate it, pervert it in any way. But he doesn't just not do certain things. Commitment to the Word of God also actively does another thing, and that is the fourth in this note. He refuses to compromise it, but on the positive end, he defines commitment by faithfully proclaiming it by faithfully proclaiming it. It's not just doctrinal precision and having every T crossed and every I dotted that demonstrates Paul's commitment to God's Word, but it is his unwavering proclamation of that truth that shows he believes it is inerrant, that it is infallible. I don't know, I've been a Christian long enough and been around long enough to know that there are many individuals and churches who are orthodox on paper. They will tell you what the Bible says about Jesus and about the Trinity and about the church and all those things, right, on paper. But when it comes to what they actually do and how they conduct themselves in ministry, they betray a lack of commitment to God's Word by its absence in the life of the church. Paul says, we didn't do that. He was committed to the truth. Verse 2, he says, by the manifestation of truth, He's holding it forth. He was relentless in proclaiming God's word and its truth. He relied on it. Why was he so committed to the word of God? Well, because faith is activated by the word of God and faith is strengthened by the word of God. Romans 10, we know it well. It activates God's word, activates faith. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You know, you, you, can't, you can't help someone understand the gospel if you don't give them the Word of God, if you don't preach and teach the Scriptures. And not only is, strength, is faith activated by the Word of God, it is strengthened in the heart of the believer by the Word of God. Galatians 2 makes that clear. Paul says to the Galatians, I only want to find out from you one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? He says, well, no, we heard by faith. That's an obvious question and answer. So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, does he do that by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, it's a rhetorical question with an obvious answer. It's by the hearing of faith that God is at work in you through his Spirit. So faith is activated and strengthened by the Word of God. God supplies the Spirit through the Word which is why the Word of God is foremost in our worship. It is foremost in our service, in our instruction, in our teaching of our little ones, in our discipleship. It, the Word of God is there. It must be there in every context. 
When we're committed to the Word of God, we refuse to compromise it in any way, and we proclaim it courageously, allowing God to do His work. So this is a second, we'll call it supernatural conviction that leads to an enduring ministry, a commitment to the Word of God. Third, we not only need to be committed to the Word of God, and he says in verse, the end of verse 2, we need to be satisfied with the approval of God. You say, I get it. I believe in the grace of God, and we're relying on the gospel. I'm committed to God's Word. I get that. Is there anything else we need to be doing or committed to? And the answer from Paul is yes. You need to be satisfied with God's approval and no one else's. I think one of the greatest hindrances to an enduring ministry is people-pleasing. It is people-pleasing. As you navigate the roads of ministry year after year, there are so many temptations that await you to gain the approval of men rather than God's approval. We see it in verse 2. He says, We are not like those walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, what? Commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So what we see in verse 2 at the end is this burning conviction in Paul's heart. He is innocent of any secret sin. He will not let deceitfulness or craftiness drive his ministry. He is not tampering the word of God. He faithfully proclaims it. And then he adds weight to that argument at the end of verse 2 by saying, I've shown myself an example in the sight of every man's conscience, even the all-knowing, everywhere present eyes of God himself in the sight of God, because the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is reve- he's revealing to us exactly whose approval Paul seeks and, and wants. He's looking for God's approval and God's approval alone. He answers to an audience of one. And, and he was accused, I mean, if you read through 2 Corinthians and even 1 Corinthians in the beginning, he is accused so often of pandering to the approval of men. And his opponents alleged that he was in ministry for his own pride, that he was trying to build his own platform or whatever. But he says, no, that is not the case. I'm not seeking man's approval. I'm seeking God's approval. You remember back in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians in verses 3, and 4 and 5, he says, It's a very small thing that I be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. He says, I don't see anything wrong with myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. The one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, he says, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden and disclose the motives of men's hearts. He says, I, I, we're, I, I do what I do for God and God alone. We're all vulnerable to this temptation, all of us. I think um, is in John 12, John commends, and not commends, excuse me, he comments that there are people who are hearing the word of God from Jesus' own lips, and they were sympathetic with what he was saying. He says, but they lo- he says in verse 43, they love the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And so they never came all the way. They never rested and truly trusted in Christ. They were afraid to acknowledge him publicly, and all of that would cost them. You contrast that with 
the Spirit's work in the new covenant, under the new covenant in Acts 5, when he and other disciples were ordered not to preach the gospel of Jesus any longer, Peter's response was, we must obey God rather than men. Many a church have wandered away from the truth because they crave the popularity or they crave the approval or prominence of some group of people. And uh, it's, it's, it's not always um, people outside of the church. They want to see, some people, you know, they judge based on results. They, they want to see results and they want to be relevant and so they compromise the truth. And, but some people, they wander away from the truth because they do not want to upset or ruffle people's feathers in the church who need to hear God's truth and what it says to their life and their expectations and their thoughts. But both have to happen if we're going to have an enduring ministry. Otherwise, the, the life of the church is bent around man's thoughts and not God's. But the truth is, God's truth is countercultural, and Jesus promised his message, no matter what context it went out, would be rejected by the vast majority of those who hear it, even religious folks. It wasn't just stone-cold rebels that would turn their back on God's word. See, the scriptures, and this is what Paul's getting at here, you cannot mix Christianity and culture any more than you can mix oil and water. They are separate. Their natures are not the same. They do not come together. How does this people-pleasing creep in and erode the foundations of ministry in a church? Well, a few different ways I can think of. These are just kind of scattershot application. When the leaders are more concerned about breadth of ministry than depth. What, what can we do to draw a crowd? How can we get more people to uh, align with what we're about? Well, pretty soon you realize that's not a super appealing message that we preach week after week, that you're a sinner and you need a Savior and, and you need to fight God's truth, uh, fight in the power of God's truth to, to live a holy life. Like that, That's not appealing to a world that wants to indulge itself in its flesh. We can make that mis- we can fall victim to to this when uh, the unbeliever and not God is the ultimate focus of worship and ministry. We can build uh, we can build a church service and a, and ministries that are, that are are oriented around um, things that are not godly, that are not about God, and don't point our hearts and minds to God. We can do that. We can make that uh, mistake of of not being faithful when the hard things. The hard things we see in Scripture rub our fur the wrong way. You know, we can begin to compromise. We can begin to ignore certain portions of God's Word. We can start to what about it away. Well, what about them and what about this? And Paul says, no. You and I, we answer to an audience of one. We will be despised and we will be rejected. We will be scoffed at at times and marginalized. We will be betrayed by those around us who we love and sacrifice for. But they did it to Christ. How should we expect anything better than he endured? Paul says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It may not reach the level of persecution, but we could certainly be treated poorly. But in the midst of all that, we press on toward the goal. We do not lose heart. We long to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. 
We look forward to that blessed hope, the scripture says, in the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Until then, we're satisfied with the approval of God, which we have not by our performance, but by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We need to rest in that peace. (laughs) We're not trying to earn his approval. We're trying to bask in that approval and the joy that comes with obedience, not to earn his salvation, but to enjoy it to its fullest. So we rest in the grace of God. We're committed to the word of God. We seek the approval of God. This is how you have an enduring ministry. It's not a secret. William Carey, famous missionary, many of you read about him, maybe heard about him, read biographies about him. He was a missionary to India in a time in history when the gospel had almost no impact on that continent in India. He went to bring the word of God to them by translating the scriptures into the many dialects and languages that permeated that huge, huge region. The summary of what he accomplished is absolutely staggering. He was there for uh, 73 years, I think, if I recall. Uh, Maybe not there, but he was working on translation for 73 years of his life. This is what he trans this is the number of translations he accomplished in that time. He translated the whole Bible into Bengali, Oriya, Hindi, Marathi, Sanskrit, and Assamese. I don't even know what these dialects are. He translated the New Testament and the Old Testament up to Ezekiel 26 into uh, the Punjabi dialect. He t- translated the New Testament and the Old Testament up to 2 Kings in the Pashto and Kashmiri dialects. He translated the New Testament and the first five books of the Bible into Telugu and Konkani. And he translated 19 other languages. Uh, He translated the New Testament in 19 other languages on top of that. And four other languages where he did at least one or more of the Gospels in 73 years. I mean, that is staggering. First of all, there was no YouTube to learn these languages back then which means he had to learn them and then build a vocabulary that they understood and to translate the Bible. God gave Kerry an opportunity, and he gave him the power. He gave him the joy of rendering the scriptures or precious portions thereof into 35 different languages to an entire empire of people. His colleague said, he is, quote, he has scarcely left a translation to be attempted on this side of India. You say, what compels a man to stay the course in a situation like that? What what compels him under the most difficult of circumstances to come to the end of his life with such a legacy of faithfulness? You know how easy it would be for him to just sit down and give up after he did one language? I mean, there are some men, that's all they accomplish in their whole life of ministry is to translate the Bible from cover to cover into one new language. He did 35 What compels a man to have a legacy of faithfulness like that? Well, he was dependent on the grace of God. He certainly was committed to the word of God. And he was satisfied alone with the approval of God alone. When people told him it wasn't worth it or it shouldn't be done, he did it because he sought to please God. And as a church, 
we must do the same. We are committed, as we have always been, to running to win. We are glorifying God by making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And we do that, we've said again and again, by holding God high through His Word, by building up the body in love, and in sowing gospel seed. This is how the church operates. And we have a number of blessings to thank God for this morning. We, we have, I guess, hit a milestone, if you will. We've crossed a significant threshold in the life of this local church, but we need to be careful that we don't move away from those core convictions that, that, that keep us moving forward day after day, month after month, and hopefully year after year. Nothing changes. It only grows as we labor in Christ's field. And pray that the Lord of the harvest would give us more workers for the task and that those who are here would keep their hands on the plow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that this week signifies in the life of our church body. We thank you for your provision. We pray that we would hold fast to these convictions, that we would never, ever get move away from the grace of God in our lives, that we would always be committed to the Word of God, that we would let it be the, the truth about you, and that, so that really the, the Word of God directs us to you, so that we would know you truly and rightly and worship you with a pure heart and in spirit and truth. May the word, our commitment to the Word of God never dissipate in our worship on the Lord's day, in our service of one another. We pray, Lord, that we would seek your approval and no one else's. And even though that may um, shut us out of certain things that we see happening around us in other churches or in other parts of the country or whatever, Lord, may we never be tempted to pervert or adulterate the Word of God, not peddle it, but use it as a tool to lead others to faith in Christ, to strengthen that faith. Lord, would you do your work in hearts this morning? We pray your blessing on this next chapter of life and ministry of our church in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at cascadesbiblechurch.com.